Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it's Halloween in April. I'm so excited (laughs) because we decided it's got to be monster time here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, even though it's not October yet. uh, You know, we, we can't put all the monsters in October. There's too much monster. Yeah, what would we talk about the rest of the year if we didn't occasionally check in with the, the monstrous denizens of the dark? And we have a great one here for a couple of episodes because there's there's just so much about it, so much about her. We are going to be talking about the Gorgon, the most famous of the three Gorgons, Medusa. Now, Medusa is just a yeah, fascinating and enthralling figure, often above and beyond the source material. But perhaps it's the perfect balance of the sort of counterintuitive aspects in her being or, or sort of the, the shadow archetypes that seem to resonate behind her. But she is a long-burning monstrosity in the minds of humanity. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this is I, I'm so excited about this pair of episodes. So just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, I think uh, in this first episode here, we're going to be mostly discussing the ancient Greek myths of Medusa, the origins of those myths. And then later on in, in part two, we're going to explore more of the, the later interpretations of Medusa and how she might apply to some interesting scientific and cultural topics. Uh, but th- this this is such rich territory. I don't know if there is a richer monster out there than Medusa other than maybe the vampire archetype. Indeed, this is this is fertile soil. And we, we've talked about doing an episode on Medusa for years. Uh, it's one we've kind of uh, you know, kicked around. But uh, this time we're covering it because uh, my, my son urged me to do it. Uh, so here we are. Uh, he, he's about to turn eight years old. And <laughs> since we couldn't actually go anywhere for spring break due to the pandemic, we did kind of um, a makeshift camp here at the house. We did mu- a myth and mushrooms camp. So my wife did a lot of mushroom-related crafts and activities with him, mushroom-growing kid and going out and, you know, looking for mushrooms. And then uh, we both partook of a lot of mythology with him, uh, given the boy's recent enthrallment with it due to uh, the Percy Jackson novels by uh, Rick Riordan. I've heard of those, but I don't know anything about them. So they have something to do with, with Greek myth? Oh, yeah, they're they're full of Greek myth. You know, it's it's sort of a post Harry Potter um, world where you have a, a you know, a, 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 boy, a young boy slash teen uh, by the name of Percy Jackson, who is Perseus, and he's encountering all the gods and monsters you would expect. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the books seem to be a lot of fun uh, for the kids. And more to the point, it it gets them into mythology. I was talking with Alison Loudermilk about it, and she said that her, her son had gone through a phase of being just super into Greek mythology because of it. Um, so, uh, you know, we were, I was, you know, we really got into the mythology, uh, and Medusa really stood out to him. So, of course, we watched the original 1981 Clash of the Titans, which features a very memorable Medusa sequence. We also watched the 1990 series Jim Henson's The Storyteller, Greek Myths, which is is excellent and features an episode about the Gorgons. Uh, I actually just watched this last night at your recommendation. It's uh, it's streaming right now. And the uh, yeah, the episode about Perseus and the Gorgon Medusa is, is just wonderful. And it has great narration by uh, Michael Gambon. Is that it? Yeah, he plays the storyteller in this one. Uh, and yeah. yeah, all four episodes are, as of this recording anyway, on Amazon Prime. So yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful fun. You get what Orpheus is one of the episodes, the Minotaur and, uh, and Icarus and Daedalus. 
Yes. And of course, uh, you know, uh, with, with my son, we also were reading a lot of Carol Rose, one of my favorite uh, monster chroniclers and folklorists. And uh, the, the boy himself absolutely demolished uh, uh, Dialeri's uh, Book of Greek Myths, that 1962 illustrated book that uh, I know a lot of us grew up with. So there's something I always wonder about with uh, with ancient mythology, including Greek myth, and and that's that I, I sense a couple of things are in tension when you're you're exposing children to them. Uh, one is that I, I feel like kids are naturally drawn to mythology, like they just eat it up, they love it. But at the same time, a lot of ancient myths are just full of of obscene cruelty and stuff yeah. that like uh, you know stuff that that I don't always remember from the tellings of those myths that I got when I was a kid, I must have gotten some kind of sanitized versions of them often. Do, do you find that a lot of that is going on? In, in, oh, in yeah. The... Yeah, because uh, on one hand, some of the versions that he's he's reading, you know, they, they've sanitized it to a certain extent, you know, certainly with Percy Jackson, uh, certainly with this this really cool comic series called The Olympians that I also recommend. Um, and, and then also the Book of Greek Myths does that as well. But that he'll also come up and he'll, he'll tell me about some just awful detail from a myth where somebody, you know, killed their parent or their or something and i'm uh-huh. like oh yeah yeah greek myths uh a lot of horrible stuff happens in them and so, and a lot of these tales are are tragic and then of course one of the the ironies of these episodes is that uh as we really dive into the the origin story the varied origin stories of medusa like some of them are just very brutal in in a way where i i probably can't let him listen to these episodes <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I think we'll try not to dwell on the most obscene and and cruel aspects of these myths, but they are ancient myths. A lot of ancient myths have obscene and cruel elements, so do be prepared. That kind of thing is coming. Yeah, so if you're listening with children, et cetera, yeah, know that this is – it's going to get into some really dark territory. So you might want to scout it out first is all I'm saying. Yeah. Now – you know, we've mentioned, yeah, Jim Henson, Clash of the Titans. These are examples we'll come back to it again and again, because a lot of times these are these are our introductions to these worlds. Percy Jackson uh, is often an introduction to Greek mythology for, for, for younger folks these days. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is another big one. Medusa has long resided within the monster manual uh, where she's sort of she sort of becomes a species unto herself. Oh, can you play as a Medusa? <laughs> I'm sh- I'm sure somebody there's a, I'm sure there have been some homebrew rules at some point, or even some official rules for playing a Gorgon. Yeah, but um, but I'm not aware of them offhand. <laughs> it would be it's one of those things would be kind of hard to uh, if, if you really had petrifying gaze. Like, how do you role play uh, that in a tavern? Like, I'm a Gorgon bard. <laughs> <laughs> So all these these <laughs> audiences hate me. <laughs> so all of these are very much downstream versions of the myth of Medusa. And some of you might, you know, you might have this sort of instinct to to criticize any discussion of the the mythic creature to begin with via such recent pop culture expressions uh, like Percy Jackson or Clash of the Titans, which, you know, at times certainly plays fast and loose with the myth. But one thing we have to keep in mind is that pretty much all versions of Medusa or or any mythological tale are a downstream product, the result of centuries upon centuries of oral tradition, uh, various tellings and retellings, various written accounts and references, cross-references, continually and perpetually reshaping the myth and the monster itself to tell better stories, to impart specific cultural ideas, or to merge with other tales or other beliefs. Belief systems. 
so yes, while watching 1981's Clash of the Titans, which, uh, you know, that was, that was big for me, introducing me to a lot of mythological ideas because it was always on TBS or TNT back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but watching that, it can be frustrating because we inevitably recoil from, uh, you know, at, at the tale being told one way and not another, of liberties being taken, the influence of modern ideas and narratives like Star Wars, uh, you know, obviously being uh, in play in the creation of this movie. But to a large extent, this was always the way with myths. Uh, this, there is often this illusion of solidarity uh, with, the Greek, with Greek mythology because all these various tales come to be largely canonized within certain major works, uh, such as those of, say, Hesiod and, and Ovid, who we'll discuss, and then much later in key modern mythology books. So much in the same way that there is no one unchanging you, there is no single unchanging Medusa. It is a creature that spans the ages, altering its form along the way, sometimes slightly, sometimes in major ways, while retaining certain aspects that resonate with us uh, on, a, on a truly universal level. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a very good point. The same way that modern authors are sometimes cleaning up myths for you to make them more palatable to children or to make them more uh, acceptable to the morals of the day or even not not even just the morals. Sometimes myths, I think, are altered just to sort of make them more acceptable to the narrative logic that's dominant within a within an era um, yeah. that was going on back then, too. Yeah. So uh, it's just, I think, always something to keep in mind. Boy, it's a hard thing to explain to to a young person, though, because uh, my son really wants, he wants the the, the canon version of the tale. And he's very into correcting uh, film adaptations and and all. And I have to kind of explain to him, it's like, well, you know, there's not really just one story. There's no... You know, there's this, this. This is a great point. I feel like children are naturally canon pedants. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is it that when you're, I was when I was a little kid, and now I, I abhor that kind of thinking. But that's absolutely how I was when I encountered all kinds of mythology as a child with Star Wars, with you know, with everything. Why? Why are kids obsessive about canon and turn always turn to canon pedantry? I guess a part, a big part of it is you know, you look to your parents and. And authority figures, you know, adjacent to your parents as as being the providers of truth, of telling you how the world works. And it's it's only later that you really begin to understand that it's not so cut and dry, that your parents didn't have it all figured out, that you have to figure some out stuff out for yourself. And some things are beyond figuring out uh, or just sort of amorphous, like, uh, you know, the, the true nature of a mythological being. And then certainly if they're if they're really into something like, say, Harry Potter, like there is one version of Harry Potter, you know, I mean, it is it is uh, it is whatever J.K. Rowling says it is, mm-hmm. you know, so um, it, it's hard to compare. You can't really compare that to Greek myth. <laughs> well, uh, so maybe the place that we should start with here is to try to give a basic retelling of the the main myths of the Gorgon, the main myths of Medusa and Perseus. Um uh, with the understanding that there are a lot of different versions of these myths and different things will come in that we can explain as we go on. But it, it, it probably makes sense to start with a coherent version of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. What uh, uh, what author David A. Lemming in Medusa in the Mirror of Time, a 2018 book, referred to as, quote, what can reasonably be called a canonical myth of Medusa? 
Yeah, I think that's a decent way of putting it. And that David Lemming book you mentioned, uh, Medusa and the Mirror of Time, that, that's going to be one of our main sources over the course of these episodes. That's It's a great, short, succinct book uh, that captures a lot of what's interesting about the Medusa myth. Uh, and so we'll be referring to him a lot throughout these episodes. Yeah, um, uh, David A. Lemming is Emeritus Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Connecticut. And he's an author of various works on myth. Uh, yeah, and his, his, this book is, is well worth checking out. Before we do that, however, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So it's time to tell the story of Medusa. Now, of course, as we said earlier, there are a lot of versions of the Medusa story. This is a theme that evolves over time, and we'll discuss the shifting canon as we go on. But at the beginning here, it would probably be best to start with the most commonly received version of the myths of Medusa and Perseus. And I'll try to summarize the story as best I can, um, relying a lot on, on work by David Lemming that we mentioned earlier, but also with a bit of poetic color from Ovid's telling in the Metamorphoses, uh, the Garth and Dryden translation. Uh, though We should note that though Ovid's telling is far from the earliest, it's where some of the best known aspects of the story come from today. Absolutely. And uh, uh, one other thing I want to point out that will become obvious is that, you know, we, we tend to refer to this story as that of, of Perseus and Medusa. And, and it is, uh, you know, that is the, the key conflict uh, that we tend to focus on. And it's the conflict that is brought out in these various cinematic adaptations. But I think in some respects, it's almost more fair to consider it the story of Athena and Medusa featuring oh, yeah. Perseus. Uh, and we'll get into that as we go. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird how Perseus can sometimes, even though he's ostensibly the hero of the story, feel kind of like a little like pawn or game piece that's being moved around by various powers. Yeah. Or just a a, a, a character of chaos that is yeah. just occasionally nudged in different directions by more powerful entities. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so according to some of the most ancient sources of the actual Medusa myth, uh, as opposed to just sort of like the imagery of Medusa, um, Mm -hmm. uh, this will be especially the Greek poet Hesiod, who would have been writing in the 7th or 8th century BCE. Medusa was originally descended from a family of primordial gods and monsters. The original being in this lineage of gods and monsters was Gaia, who is the personification of the earth itself. And at first, Gaia was without a mate, so she conceived a son parthenogenetically, meaning uh, virgin birth, much like an island-stranded Komodo dragon. (laughs) And this son that she gave birth to was known as Pontus, and he became her counterpart. She was the personification of the earth, and Pontus was the personification of the ocean. Yeah, and this is the sort of thing is not uncommon among primordial mythic beings. Uh, So then together, Gaia and her son Pontus conceived more children, including the two figures who would become the parents of Medusa. And these figures were uh, Phorcus, the sea god who Homer called the old man of the sea. He's sometimes depicted with claws. He was generally kind of a fish man, crab person type thing. So he's kind of like the, uh, the the crabby character on uh, SpongeBob, basically. I, I'm actually not familiar with SpongeBob canon. I, I can't go in there, oh. but... There's a fish man crab person monster. Yeah, the the character is uh, Mr. Krabs, who runs um, runs a restaurant, and he's voiced by Clancy Brown. Oh wow, Clancy Brown! I didn't yeah. know he was on SpongeBob. Oh yeah, he's he's a major part of it. Well, I'm glad to hear he's doing voice work. 
Yeah, yeah, he has a great voice. Uh, it's it's great to see that he yeah he lends it to a number of different projects. Okay, so we got uh, Forkus, the old man of the sea, and then on the other hand, we've got Keto or Keto, which is where we get our classic terminology for whales, the idea of the, the Ketus or the Cetus, and, and Keto was a giant sea monster. Hmm. And together, Forkus and Keto produced a whole mess of monsters from their union. So first of all, you've got the Grae, and this is a set of triplets who were all born with gray hair. They're described as hags who share one eye and one tooth between the three of them, and their gray hair was believed to embody the foam of heavy seas during a storm. Yeah, they are often depicted in TV and film adaptations of the Medusa story. Uh, you see them in Clash of the Titans, Henson, Percy Jackson, and others. Uh, my, my son is really into them. And the other day, he quizzed me on what their names were, uh, which I had no idea. Uh, but then he spouted them off. Uh, they are Dino, Inyo, and Pafredo, uh, when there are three anyway. So in some tellings, there are only two. Yeah, and I think their names, I don't recall exactly what they translate to, but they have something to do with the qualities of the sea. Their names translate to things like depth and terror and stuff. Yeah. Now, another offspring of this union of uh, of Forcus and, and Keto or Keto uh, is Thusa, who became the mother of Polyphemus. Polyphemus, of course, is the Cyclops in the Odyssey who Odysseus stabs in the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got Echidna, the she-viper. This is a woman who was half-snake. Yeah, and uh, sometimes she's credited as being the mother of monsters in other tellings, uh, mother of Medusa even. And and I guess, uh, you know, there's a little bit of echidna in the uh, recreation of 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 the Gorgon in Clash of the Titans, uh, Ray Harryhausen's fabulous sequence. Oh, is she half snake in that? I, I don't yeah, the, she's she's depicted as being um, a snake from the waist down. Uh, you know, have, being mm. kind of a, a serpentine centaur, uh, and and then being more traditionally uh, a Gorgon from the waist up, but without the wings. Mm, okay. So another one of the offspring here is uh, one that's familiar to us is going to be Scylla, the, the sea monster with many heads who swallowed sailors who came too close to her rocks. And she's classically the counterpart of uh, Charyptus, right? So you've got this mm -hmm. pair of hazards in the ocean that is difficult to thread a pathway through. Charyptus, of course, is like a whirlpool. Yeah. And then, of course, finally, you've got the Gorgons. And the Gorgons are a trio of sisters whose name comes from the word Gorgos, which means frightening or terrifying. Medusa is one of the three Gorgon sisters. The names of the other two are Steno and Uriali. And curiously, we are told by multiple ancient sources that while the other two Gorgon sisters are immortal, tragically, Medusa is not immortal. Uh, Hesiod writes specifically that her fate was a sad one, for she was mortal. Though it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's ever explained anywhere why specifically she and only she was mortal. Yeah, nothing ever seems, at least in anything I've read, uh, seems to be really made of that fact. Like, it's not like, oh, well, that means that Perseus is forever hounded by these immortal gorgons or anything like that. It's just kind of, hey... Here's the facts. <laughs> it seems like one of those things that might have been, uh, you know, when people were trying to stitch together disparate versions of a, of a myth cycle uh, that, that had incompatible facts, you might just paper that over by inserting a little like, uh, by the way, she was mortal for some reason. 
Yeah, yeah. If someone was like, wait, I thought they were immortal. No, no, she was mortal, so she's dead. She was the only one, though, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, according to a fragmentary document called The Shield of Heracles, the three Gorgon sisters would walk about with serpents hanging from their girdles. So imagine a kind of Batman utility belt, but all the pouches are replaced with snakes. And the, the belt snakes would leer and they would flick their tongues at anyone who beheld them. Yeah, and I have to say, depictions of this are cooler and grislier looking than it sounds. Perhaps in part <laughs> Does because it not the, sound cool enough for you. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it doesn't sound cool when I read it initially because it's like, oh, and they, she had they had snakes for belts. That just sounds kind of I don't know, kind of lame. But then you see an image, and it's like these snakes are hanging off, and you know, and maybe writhing a bit. And there's there's perhaps a sense of the. Um, we won't get into this until the second episode, but, uh, you know, you get into some of these Freudian concepts of yeah. what uh, Medusa is all about. And you look at an image like that and you can you can see it. Uh, but again, more on that in the second episode. Yeah, it should not come as a surprise that some people, especially Freud, read a lot of genital significance into the depiction of the uh, the, the snake-bearing uh, sisters here. Now, uh, writing of the three Gorgon sisters, Apollodorus says that their heads were twined about with the scales of dragons and that they had golden wings, or I've also seen it said sometimes bronze wings, and also great tusks like a swine's tusks. Yeah, those wings are often forgotten in art and, uh, you know, other depictions, cinematic or otherwise. I think in part because that's just one more thing you have to try and bring to life, uh, either yeah. with effects <laughs> or otherwise. Though uh, Henson does have the wings in, in his version. Mm -hmm. I think also sometimes, as with the Clash uh, adaptation, there's an attempt to focus more on those serpentine details. You know, like people want hybridity, but they don't want to deal with a chimera. Um uh, you know, generally speaking, Chimera. Of course, for the most part, you don't see a lot of um, like cinematic adaptations of the mythical Chimera either. Like we want half and half. We don't want, uh, you know, three different types of animal physiologies merged together. Well, yeah, I mean, I want, at what point do you start pushing from minimally counterintuitive into just like too complicated, too weird? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big part of it, too. Yeah. So anyway, you, you've got these three terrifying sisters, all with snakes a-dangling. They've got scaly dragon heads. They've got wild boar tusks and huge metal wings. And in this telling, uh, Medusa is quite clearly a primordial monster, right? She's ancient. She springs from a line of beings with deep roots in the earth and sea and natural forces. And it's it, in this version of Medusa, it's easy to see similarities here with other primordial monster gods who embody or spring from embodiments, especially of the sea, right? Like yeah. Tiamat, the saltwater dragon of ancient Babylonian myth, particularly in the uh, Enuma Elish, who spits poison and death upon the world, who creates creatures that are kind of xenomorph-like in that they have acid for blood. Yeah, and, and I think in all this, too, remembering the, the saltwater origin of these creatures, we have to remember the, uh, you know, the importance of sailing and fishing in the, the, the Mesopotamian and then the, the, you know, the Greek world that we're discussing here, like the, the terror of the sea, the, the risks of the sea, the unknown depths of the sea, you know, all of these uh, impacting uh, the psyche and the creativity of, uh, of, of early people. 
Well, I think it's no coincidence that Poseidon is maybe the most like cruel and capricious and bad tempered of all the Olympian gods, right? Because this, the sea is a place of great bounty and promise, but it's also full of chaos and death and, and it can't be, it can't necessarily be predicted. The sea itself is bad tempered. Yeah, yeah, it really cannot be trusted, uh, and you see that with uh, with arguably with the gods in general, but especially with Poseidon. But okay, that's the version of Medusa where she she's from this primordial lineage of ancient creatures and monsters. There are other tellings in which it seems like Medusa was once maybe a human or at least something more vaguely humanoid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like one of the main examples is the version of the Medusa myth that we get presented in Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is probably the most familiar version of the myth to us today, probably the most canonical version. And in this, it says that Medusa was once a beautiful young woman with many suitors. She was widely admired for her beauty and her glamorous hair. Um, Ovid writes, quote, Medusa once had charms. To gain her love, a rival crowd of envious lovers strove. They who have seen her own, they ne'er did trace more moving features and a sweeter face. Yet above all, her length of hair they own in golden ringlets waved and graceful shone. So this goes very much against like the uh, the version of Medusa we were just talking about, who's mm-hmm. like this, uh, you know, uh, who, who's sort of monster to the core and monster from the beginning. Uh, but in this version of the story, tragically, Medusa catches the attention of the cruel and violent god Poseidon, the lord of the sea, the commander of natural disasters like earthquakes and storms. And in Ovid's telling, Poseidon comes down to the earth and he rapes Medusa in the midst of the temple of Pallas Athena, the virgin goddess of wisdom. And this attack represents a desecration of Athena's temple. And so because her sacred home is defiled, Athena becomes furious. And you, you of course, do not want to be on Athena's bad side. After the attack is over, Athena takes out her revenge horribly, not on her uncle Poseidon, but on Medusa. Yeah, it, it's as if Poseidon is uh, is kind of untouchable in this. Yeah, know? he's one of the big three after all. And uh, you know, I think Arachne uh, would remind us that the gods as a whole are cruel and violent. Uh, you might remember, uh, uh, listeners, Arachne was turned into a spider for disrespecting the gods, namely Athena, uh, whom she lost a uh, a weaving contest to. Um, but yeah, this this. This particular uh, telling of of God and possibly mortal interactions really smacks of cruelty. Uh, I I should note a couple of things here. Now, uh, Ovid chiefly contributes or at least records the sexual assault aspect of this story in the classical tradition, while Hesiod and uh, Apollodorus keep it at lay with. Uh, You know, they lay together and uh, and that offended Athena. Uh, While others, tellers of the tale, have described the union as an act of seduction, such as folklorist Carol Rose. Now, I don't know how much of that is just um, sanitizing it again a little bit, like we've said, you know, know, you're Mm -hmm. you're taking some of the more horrific details out of the story uh, for especially younger readers. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I thought that was important to note. Uh, Apollodorus, however, added the wrinkle that Medusa had previously claimed that her beauty matched that of Athena. So we get into territory where, from the point of view of the gods, 
this is just mortals paying for their vanity one more time. So that it's not just Athena is blaming the victim for the crime, but Athena also has it in for the victim because she previously had the gall to say that she was on Athena's level. Yeah, exactly. And and so Athena, she turns her fury against Medusa here. Ovid again uh, writes, the bashful goddess, that's talking about Athena, the bashful goddess turned her eyes away, nor durst such bold impurity survey. But on the ravished virgin vengeance takes, her shining hair is changed to hissing snakes. These in her aegis palace joys to bear, the hissing snakes her foes more sure ensnare than they did lovers once when shining hair. It's interesting that he describes Athena as bashful. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's not strange... really the first description that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's this weird thing, that the way Athena is depicted as, I mean, it's often emphasized that she is like, a, there's something pure about her, that she is the virgin goddess, they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's sometimes described as this weird quality of like shyness or something. Uh, but, but of course, we know that uh, Athena is quite bold and quite powerful and has great uh, uh, wisdom and strength and rage, and you do not want to be her enemy yeah i hope she doesn't listen to the podcast by the way (laughs) i don't know if we're really portraying her in the best light here no no not a lot of the gods come out of this looking great um uh, but so anyway this is how medusa becomes a monster athena transforms her into this hateful mockery of her former self she's once known for her beauty you know her curly locks of hair now she's a creature with slithering snakes for hair a creature so hideous that anyone who looks upon her would instantly be turned to stone yeah, it's it's a it's a weird and dark origin story, but you know, here we are. But so beyond her tragic origin story, Medusa is probably best known as the monster, the sort of dragon figure of the Perseus myth. And so I think maybe now we should turn to the myth of Perseus's journey. And one of my main sources here, of course, is going to be that book by David Lemming, which uh, provides an excellent overview of and synthesis of the different sources on the story. Like a great many heroic narratives, the story of Perseus actually begins with a miraculous conception under dire circumstances. So once upon a time, in the ancient Greek city of Argos, which is on the the eastern end of the Peloponnese, it's often said to have been the oldest Greek city or one of the oldest Greek cities, the city uh, was ruled by a selfish and paranoid king named Acrisius. And Acrisius had a daughter named Danae. Uh, but Acrisius, he longs to have a son to carry on his line. And one day, Acrisius visits an oracle to ask whether he will ever be able to father a son. And instead, the oracle warns him that he will not have a son, but his daughter Danae will. And the boy she gives birth to will one day murder him. Hmm. Now, how many Greek stories start with an oracle and then they turn out good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You're just I like can't why would one. you visit an oracle at all? It just never works out, right? I mean, it's always some like ironic point about trying to avoid fate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really a, a story we continue to tell to this day. You know, just the idea that if you yeah, you don't really want to know what's coming because it's only going to make things worse. You're not going to be able to really duck fate, or you're yeah, we're just going to you know d- double down on the horrors to come. Uh, yeah, it's I mean it's 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 why these stories resonate so strongly with us. 
Yeah. Uh, so, of course, Acrisius, being selfish and kind of paranoid, he fears for his own life. So he resolves to prevent the prophecy from ever coming true. And he says, okay, Denny right now is childless at the time he gets the warning. She doesn't have a son yet. And so Acrisius figures he can escape his fate if he just locks her in a prison cell forever. I've seen the prison characterized in different ways. Sometimes it's a tower. Uh, I've seen it elsewhere characterized as like some kind of subterranean dungeon or even a box of bronze. But anyway, uh, so of course, Acrisius believes that by imprisoning his daughter like this, she will stay childless forever. But Zeus, the king of the gods who reigns in the sky, he sees the young woman locked away in her prison cell, and he comes down to her in the form of a shower of gold from the clouds, and Danae conceives a child. This is a, her child is a boy, and she gives him the name Perseus. Uh, this part is uh, yet another recurring theme in Greek mythology, of course, God coming down and, and having sex with a mortal woman to father a child uh, to become a, a type of demigod or a son of God here. Yeah, that's, this is uh, also one of the, the key uh, plot points in those Percy Jackson books is that all the, the, uh, the young characters are the children of the gods that have been in the modern world created, sired the same way and kind of, you know, left uh, you know, none of them have any real connection with their divine parents and have a lot of mixed up feelings uh, concerning them. Well, yeah, I mean, the gods do not tend to be very good parents here. So yeah. like, so you, Perseus now, this boy is half human and he's half king of the gods. And so uh, Perseus begins to grow up in this prison cell with his mother. And at some point, Acrisius discovers this boy imprisoned with Danae. And Acrisius, of course, is still in fear for his life. And so he says, okay, I've got to, I've got to be more, more extreme even now. So he has Danae and the young Perseus locked inside a box and tossed into the ocean to die. It's interesting. Lemming describes this box as, quote, a, uh, a sort of arc, as in the Ark of the Covenant. And indeed, that's often how it is depicted, including uh, in the 1981's Clash of the Titan and also in that Jim Henson adaptation. Yeah, the strategy is often presented as a kind of indirect murder method. It's like, hey, I didn't kill them. I just left them to their fate. Uh, it, it seems like a, a kind of weird moral sensibility that makes a real distinction there. But he... he a lot of characters in, in Greek culture seem to think along these lines. Yeah, it's as if to say, for legal purposes, the ocean is the one that will murder you. <laughs> right? <laughs> um yeah, uh, but of course, uh, Danny and Perseus didn't die. Instead, the, while they're floating around in this box, they are rescued by a fisherman named Dictus, who is the brother of Polydectes, the king of the island of Seraphos. And there on the island of Seraphos, Danae and Perseus come under the protection of Polydectes' court, under, under the protection of his house. Now, eventually, the King Polydectes here, he, he, he turns out to be a pretty wicked king, too. Mm -hmm. He decides that he wants to marry Danae, but she refuses him, and Perseus supports his mother in her refusal of the king's hand. So Polydectes, what, he, he wants a way to get rid of young Perseus, uh, to sort of get him out of the picture to improve his chances of, of wedding Danae. And a great opportunity actually presents itself. 
let's send Perseus out on a suicide mission. Polydectes sends Perseus out with the task of killing the monster Medusa, who is, of course, one of the dreaded Gorgon sisters, and to bring back her severed head. Now, this version that you just told, this makes the most sense, right? Like, Perseus wants to protect his mother, uh, Polydectes wants to marry her, and he's like, sure, I'll leave your, your mother alone if you bring me the head of the Medusa, ha <laughs> ha. But in uh, the typical version of the story is that Polydectes just demands some fine horses, like, oh, you, I, I need some just ridiculously nice horses. Uh, let's see you get those. And then Perseus just leaps up like a final bidder in a Hollywood au- auction scene, you know, where they just outrageously outbid everybody by like a million dollars and gives himself the suicide mission. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll bring you the head of a Gorgon. And um, and Polydectes is like, okay, um, you know, I was thinking about trying to send you on a suicide mission, but if you just want to propose one, go for it. Uh, so he's, a, he's, of course, delighted and accepts, yeah. But, but it's like Perseus who's just, uh, who comes up with the idea in, uh, in most of these tellings where he's just like, I'll kill the Gorgon. How about that? Yeah. Uh, so actually, I think the way it works is Polydectes, he tries a ruse where he says, actually, I'm not going to marry your mom. Don't worry about it. Chill out. I'm going to marry some other woman. Uh, but if I marry this other lady, I'm going to need some good mares as a wedding present. And mm-hmm. of course, Perseus, what? He doesn't have any money to go out horse trading and get horses for a wedding present. So what does he have to offer? Basically, he just has his courage. So he's yeah. like, hey, hey, I know. I'll go find a primordial snake lady. I'll kill her. I'll bring you her head. And again, of course, this works out great for Polydectes because Polydectes knows that the gaze of Medusa turns men into stone. So this is an easy way to be rid of Perseus. Here's one less pesky kid getting in the way of his his dating game. I I mean, and I I, I criticize Perseus because, A, it's really easy to hate Perseus um, based on all the details of the story. But... But I guess you can see this as being really clever on his part because he chooses something – he chooses a a task that is difficult enough or even seemingly impossible enough that Polydectes agrees to it. Uh, But also he has – he has enough confidence that he can somehow pull it off. Right. I mean I think, again, one of the most common – personality traits we see in these heroes of old is just kind of like endless confidence. You know, you should have no reason to think that you can kill the Gorgon Medusa, but he he just, yeah, I can do it. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Stuff just kind of falls in my lap. That's how it works. Um, But but either way you kind of look at it, Medusa is not even the adversary that is thrust upon him by a cruel king, which is which is what we see, like, say, in the labors of Hercules. She is instead just out there on the edge of the world, minding her own business, already punished harshly when Perseus simply decides that killing her would be an ideal feat to accomplish his ends. Yeah, she's not doing anything. It's not It's not like Beowulf, like she's raiding the hall or something. She's just on the other side of the world. Yeah, like Clash of the Titans, like one of the things it does is it retrofits the story where the head of the Medusa is the thing we need to overcome some other adversary or to get through some, some great horror that's coming, um, which, you know, I think makes it a little more palpable to, to modern uh, audiences. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. it's like you said, we have to... We have to think about what the the model of the hero is that we're dealing with in these uh, ancient versions. Right. All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And we're back. 
So Perseus sets out on his quest, and along the way, he's given aid by the god Hermes, who's, of course, the messenger of the gods, who flies between worlds on his winged sandals, and, of course, also by Athena, popping <laughs> back up in the story yet again to to just never stop spitting calamity in Medusa's direction. Yeah, as if Medusa hadn't suffered enough for angering Athena, the gray-eyed goddess instantly jumps in to help Perseus out in his quest to murder her. Right. Uh, and it's worth considering that there are sort of double alliances here. Like, first, yes, it really does seem just kind of like Athena hates Medusa and is always making things worse for her. But second, also, Perseus is Athena's demigod half-brother, right? They both share Zeus as a father, mm -hmm. and both were conceived in these unconventional mythological ways. Yeah, Athena springs from the, the head of Zeus, yeah. So I think you could see Perseus as a kind of champion or representative of the interests of the Olympian pantheon down here on Earth. Like the, the Zeus administration has as an agent <laughs> on Earth, Perseus. And you're kind of going to see that in the way that he fights against uh, and causes trouble for these other primordial non-Olympian beings. Like the enemies of the Zeus administration will just get endless grief from Perseus. Like, Perseus, I need you to go on uh, network news this evening. Just make all the rounds and uh, just verbally attack <laughs> all of my enemies. All the, all the titans, uh, all the monsters, you just yeah. let them have it. Right. Anybody from the line of Gaia, any titans out there, yeah, just go at them. <laughs> But anyway, Percy, so he goes on this journey with multiple stops. We don't have to get into all the stops on the journey right here. There are some that are more germane to what we're talking about than others, I think. Yeah, but if we were to make a montage of it, basically Perseus needs to ID the Gorgons. He needs to gear up with magical weapons to fight them, find out where they are exactly, and of course travel there. Right. That, that's a good summary. So at one point, Perseus does encounter the three Grae sisters, the, the gray-haired hags who share the one eye and the one tooth between them. And Perseus's strategy here is quite clever. He steals their one eye. <laughs> just seems... Which just, it, it, I mean, he sounds just like such a bully. There's like three hags who share one eye and he takes their one eye and he uses the eye to get leverage, basically to leverage information out of them, specifically about how to acquire some pieces of magic equipment that he needs. Yeah, he's, he's direct and to the point. And I, and I love how in some versions of the tale, Perseus returns their eye and tooth, because sometimes he takes the tooth as well, uh, yeah. afterwards. And other times he just keeps them. Right. <laughs> and some modern tellings find a middle ground by having him return the eye, but just like throwing it into the room somewhere where they have to like scramble for it. So he's not being, uh, you know, a complete uh, meanie about it. Like he's not just going to keep the eye forever or squash it or whatever. Uh, but he doesn't just hand it back like, OK, uh, business concluded. I don't know. Something about it just seems like so classically bullyish. It's like the bully stealing the kid's glasses. It's like, oh, four eyes need his glasses. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we know he's got to get this magical equipment. So he has to go to the realm of the nymphs to get some of it. Uh, and he ends up acquiring a number of powerful objects and tools to, to help him in his quest, including a pair of winged sandals, a leather bag that's known as a kibisis, sometimes translated as a wallet, but I think this is best understood as like a sack of some kind. Uh, a helmet from Hades that confers the power of invisibility, a magic sickle made of unbreakable adamantine, and a shield that is so well polished that its face is as a mirror. 
I mean, he really gears up for this quest. And the thing is, like, if these are magical items, if this was Dungeons & Dragons, uh, I don't think he'd even be able to attune to this many items. I think there's, like, what, a a uh, three-attunement limit? Uh, (laughs) And he's just, like, just just, uh, geared up to the gills with Uh high-powered magical items. In video game terms, I was thinking this might be described as (laughs) over-leveling. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But anyway... Once he has all the weapons he needs, uh, and once he discovers where he needs to go, Perseus uses the winged sandals to fly to the dwelling place of the Gorgons, which is someplace out at the edge of the world. Yeah, I love how Lemming describes this place as, uh, quote, a kind of underworld at the end of the ocean. Yeah. uh, In more rationalist accounts, it's described as a a place kind of far out to the west, like a series of islands in the Atlantic Ocean. But wherever this otherworldly place is, once he gets there, Perseus knows, he remembers in advance, that he cannot look at Medusa or he'll be turned to stone. So he uses the mirror-faced shield to see her as he sneaks up upon the sisters while they're sleeping. And they're sleeping among a garden of stone that are apparently the remains of men and animals who once looked Medusa in the eye. Yeah, and this is a haunting uh, uh, setting uh, that, it, that is really brought to wonderful life in, in some of these adaptations. Uh, again, that, the Clash of the Titans uh, sequence uh, with Perseus and Medusa is just uh, so wonderfully brought to life. Totally, though. One of the things that, uh, again, just like how it gets adapted to our modern sensibilities Modern adaptations tend to make it some kind of heroic fight against this threatening enemy. I mean, in the story, he sneaks up on the sisters while they're sleeping. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're they're taking a nap, and Perseus comes up to Medusa and uses the magic sickle to chop off her head and then put it in a leather sack. Yeah, and then run before the other two Gorgons can really do much about it, which, yeah, doesn't—it's not very cinematic. It's not um, very—it's not intense— you know, the, the the Ray Harryhausen sequence, for instance, makes it where it's more like Perseus is hunted by the monster. Yeah. Um, because that ultimately creates more tension, uh, you know, for our, for us as, as viewers and resonates more with with our, our modern expectations. Uh, but but not so much with, like, the, the role of the Greek hero. Yeah. Uh, so strangely, when Medusa is killed, it's noted that a couple of mythical beings just sort of erupt out of her dead body. One of them is the winged horse uh, Pegasus, and the other is a warrior known as Chryseor. Yeah, who, by the way, would uh, himself go on to father the three-headed monster Geryon. Lemming notes that there's some indication that Medusa somehow unnaturally birthed these creatures uh, via the parentage of Poseidon. Fair enough. I mean, we're up to our uh, waist in in a pretty weird story. That doesn't really make it too much weirder uh, to imagine that. For some reason, when I was uh, reading about this, I I was reminded so much of the ending of The Fly 2, where where, like the the monster is kind of defeated and you end up with like two entities emerging from it. Though in that, like one is pure and one is monstrous. In this one, like both are beautiful like it's a a seemingly normal humanoid hero and a beautiful flying horse so uh i don't know you know the original fly i just realized would fit in quite well uh with ovid's metamorphoses right it's a story about a, a change in the body brought on by hubris oh man that's perfect 
Anyway, so back to Perseus and Medusa. So Medusa's dead, head chopped off. Perseus has got it, and he crams the head into the bag, into the kibisus. And now Medusa's Gorgon sisters, Stheno and Uriali, they are awakened. And, of course, they become enraged because they see their sister dead, and they give chase, trying to kill the boy. But fortunately, Perseus still has some gear. He uses the helm of invisibility and the winged sandals to escape them. Now Medusa is dead, and the story is far from over. Uh, on the journey home with the Gorgon's head in the sack, Perseus stops to take part in several other adventures. Uh, a major one that we're not going to get into in depth is uh, this part of the story where he rescues a princess named Andromeda from a dragon and ends up marrying her. But also uh, as part of the story where, where the head of Medusa becomes very relevant – Perseus comes across Atlas. Atlas is, of course, a, a titan. You know, he was one of the original race of titans that were defeated in a war by the gods led by Zeus. And so now he's this sort of like defeated prisoner of war type figure who is tortured after losing this war by the gods uh, uh, by being forced to hold up the sky for eternity. And when Perseus arrives in Atlas's lands, uh, Atlas is obviously not a fan. Of course, first of all, mm -hmm. Atlas is suffering after his people lost this war to Zeus, and Perseus claims Zeus is his father. Second, like, who is this kid with a bloody leather bag? But <laughs> uh, so because he feels not welcomed by Atlas, Perseus pulls the severed head of Medusa out of the bag and shows it to Atlas. Atlas looks on the head and he turns to stone. And in this form, Atlas becomes a mountain range that holds up the sky. Then, when Perseus finally arrives back home uh, with his bride Andromeda, he uses Medusa's head to turn the wicked king Polydectes and his servants into stone, and he sets his mother free. So really, P Perseus is just going on a freaking rampage with the Gorgon's head, <laughs> just uh -huh. petrifying anyone he likes, even a titan, before finally, uh, you know, eventually handing it back in, which we'll get to. Uh, fun fact, um, Atlas shows up in that Henson adaptation, played by none other than Pat Roach. Oh, yeah, Pat Pat Roach, of course, played the bald Nazi that um, Indiana Jones fights uh, in front of the, uh, uh, the the airplane in um, yeah, Raiders gets, of the Lost Ark. Gets turned into propeller soup, yeah. Yeah, he plays, uh, oh, he's in like Conan the Barbarian. Uh, no, well, no, he's in Conan the Destroyer. Uh, he's in that. Um, he is also in Clash of the Titans, where he plays Hephaestus. And, of course, his background <laughs> was British professional wrestling. So he's quite an interesting fella. Now, in the Henson version of the story, they, they change it so they don't, they don't make Perseus so vindictive and they don't make it a, like, petrifaction murder. Right. It's portrayed that Atlas is weary of this. Uh, you know, he's tired from having to hold up the sky. And it's like uh, Perseus takes uh, pity on him and turns him to stone to, uh, to you know, I guess, to save him his burden. Oh, sweet. It was it was a mercy petrifaction. There was another interesting fact that Lemming mentions in his book, and that's uh, that the petrifaction of Polydectes and his followers might be a type of ideological myth, a myth explaining, you know, an origin or feature of something. And in this case, it would be a known circle of standing stones on the island of uh, Seraphos that, mm. you know, it's like, ah, oh, here's, you know, Polydectes and his followers who were turned to stone once. But anyway, at the end of the story, here's where we get into some really interesting territory. Perseus doesn't just like, you know, keep the head as a trophy. He gives the head of Medusa to Athena. 
And it becomes the emblem of Athena's breastplate or shield. Uh, now, of course, in addition to being the goddess of wisdom, Athena was sometimes styled as a goddess of warfare. And this, of course, be- becomes part of the very interesting tradition of the Aegis, the idea that both Athena and Zeus had this object that's mentioned in ancient Greek literature all over the place, but exactly what it is is sort of unclear. Now, it's called an aegis. It's sometimes translated as a shield or a breastplate or piece of armor or some kind of animal skin like a goat skin. Whatever it is, it's some kind of protection device or some kind of covering that the gods can hide behind or can shield themselves with. And it has this power that's described both as protective and as frightening, which is very interesting. Like normally you might think of a weapon as terrifying, but this is a terrifying shield or a terrifying covering or piece of armor. And in many depictions, the central visual feature of the aegis of Athena and of Zeus becomes the head of Medusa, or at least the image of the head of Medusa. Yeah, and and this is really one of those points where the story uh, does seem to just come back around to being all about Athena's rage against Medusa, as as she accepts the head of the Gorgon and absorbs it into her shield or makes her shield out of it. Uh, The less harsh interpretation of this is that, you know, via the creation of the Gorgons, Athena unleashed a powerful weapon on the world, and now she has taken it back and claimed it as her own. But I also can't help but think of Medusa as, as still being alive in some fashion, you know, in the same way that the snakes continue to writhe in these cinematic and artistic um, depictions of Medusa's head. So, you know, it's, it, it, there's even this idea that perhaps the, the head is still alive as its essence is infused into Athena's shield. And if so, it just seems like another level of just, you know, a horrible God-inflicted fate. You know, speaking of fate, as a coda to the story, I should mention, of course, Perseus, Danny, and Andromeda eventually do return to uh, Danny and Perseus's home city of Argos. And when Perseus shows back up, uh, Acrisius, remember him from the beginning, the king who oh, didn't yes. want to be murdered by his grandson? Well, mm-hmm. he's just like, dude, I am done. And he just flees. <laughs> he goes to another city to hide. And later on in the city where the king goes into hiding, Perseus just happens to show up and he takes part in some funeral games or funeral games are a a feature of a lot of stories back then. Remember the funeral games at the death of Patroclus in the Iliad. Funeral games include things like the throwing of the discus. So Perseus is Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'll play. So he decides (laughs) to throw the discus and he accidentally hurls the discus into his grandfather's head, killing him and proving the oracle's prophecy true. Doe. And it has, like, nothing to do with the, the, the adventure or with the Gorgon or anything. He just accidentally throws a disc and hits him. Almost as if um, someone said, Storyteller, uh, what about that, that oracle and the prophecy that you mentioned at the beginning? Oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, he threw a discus at a, at a funeral game and it hit, it hit him in the head. Yeah, he died after all. He died after all. 
We kid, but again, I, this does come back to the you know sort of the nature of myth about like converging and uh, and, and, and the absorption of different stories and the the continuing uh, uh, you know retinkering of the tale and the myth as we uh, as we as we experience it. Uh, so you know sometimes I think there are elements like that where things don't maybe completely come together. There are some little plot holes that emerge that you know sometimes other storytellers come around and try to fill them or smooth them out. Mm -hmm. I feel like it would be more conventional and make more sense if like Perseus, I don't know, he got out the Medusa, say he still had the Medusa head, maybe he gets it out of the bag every now and then to clean it or something. And, you know, he gets it out of the bag right at the moment that Acrisius accidentally walks into the room and sees it and then turns to stone. You know, that seems like that'd be more, uh, uh, more uh, connected in a holistic way. Yeah. But, you know, instead, that would be nice and tragic. It would have an air of tragedy to it to a certain extent. I mean, but then also not that much because the grandfather did lock his mother uh, up in a prison and that's where he's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not. Yeah. what, What can you say? Is the discus ending supposed to be funny? Maybe it is. Maybe. Or, you know, it it also kind of sounds like. To me, this is just me uh, spitballing here. This is nothing that Lemming argues, but it also has the the smack of, say, a story that originally didn't have any of that middle stuff. Like, let me tell you the story about a, uh, a king oh, who, was a, yes, who heard yeah. that his grandson would kill him. So he uh, he didn't let his daughter uh, out of a box. She had a son anyway. So he threw him in another box, threw him in the ocean. They And they were lost for years and years. Then they came back. He was in a funeral game, threw a discus, and he died. I mean, it's not a, not saying that's a great story, but at least it's... It, it gets to the end a little quicker. Uh, but instead, we have this whole additional story that ends up sandwiched in the middle. You know, it actually forms a, a very similar kind of bracket to the uh, bracketing of the narrative of Jason and the Argonauts, right? Where, like, you know, he goes mm-hmm. on a journey in the middle, but then comes back to the court situation at the end. And, and there's sort of, uh, you know, vengeance happens or fate is delivered. Yeah. But at any rate, it does bring us to the end of this particular mythological story and it brings us to the end of this episode but not the end of our discussion of medusa yeah it looks like we need to call part one here but next time we'll be able to come back and explore so many more fascinating angles on this myth uh we'll get to talk about uh possible origins in apotropaic magic uh the sort of backwards development of myths that can sometimes happen we'll talk about reception history uh you know all throughout cultures and in different time periods we'll talk about art we'll talk about science uh i'm very excited absolutely all right so in the meantime if you want to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind uh, and we have done quite a few episodes about monsters and myths over the years you can find us wherever you get your podcasts wherever that happens to be help us out by rating reviewing and subscribing huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Thank you.